Gordon is typing. Yes, are we on Zoom? We are. We are. <laughs> It's Friday, July 16th, and this is the Dutch News Podcast, your weekly chance to catch up with what's been going on here in the Netherlands. I'm Paul Peters, master student in civil engineering and not a Jeff Bezos astronaut. And with me today are Gordon Derrick, contributing editor at Dutch News and kite epidemiologist, and Robin Pascoe, Dutch News editor-in-chief and bureaucracy Don Quixote. Do I pronounce it correctly? I don't know. I don't know. It's sort of uh, Don Quixote, red, tape, red tape. That's all it is. Quixote, yeah, something like yeah. that. The, that guy who uh, uh, the, from Spanish, uh, a Spanish book, I believe, who uh, fights windmills. But Robin, you have been fighting bureaucracy, right? Well, I'm just trying to get an answer out of the council because they're doing some building work next door, a couple of doors down. We want to know if what they're doing is legal, but we can't actually get an answer until they've asked for a permit. But what we want to know is, do they need a permit to do it? So we're just sort of going round and round and round in circles, being told, no, you can't make a complaint until they ask for a permit. But the fact they don't have a permit is our complaint. So it's... Yeah. Uh, it, <laughs> no, it's, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah it's, it's fabulous. You know, Amsterdam City Council <laughs> could have gone mad. He was very apologetic, yeah. little man. But it's like, well, can you help me? Well, no, not really. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, great, thanks, you know. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Who do you, is there someone you can complain to about the fact the council the council will not let them consider your complaint well, about the permit? I suspect yeah. the ombudsman might be able to give me an answer, no, no. but they may also require you know a complaint to be make, made made well, first. Exactly. You know? So I have no clue. Yeah, exactly. Next stage. You, anyway, if you want to build seven meters out into your garden in Amsterdam without a permit, it seems you can do it because you don't ask for a permit. No one can complain about it. Okay, interesting. Yeah, that reminds me of the time I, I lost both my driver's license and and my ID card at the same time. And then I applied for a new ID card. But for that, you needed some sort of identification to uh, to renew it. But, you know, I didn't have one because I lost everything. And hmm. uh, that was also a uh, an, an interesting uh, bureaucratic uh, adventure. <laughs> yeah. But did you need a license to go into space like Jeff, Be- Jeff Bezos? Um, is, is that the reason that you're not currently out in orbit? I think you need quite uh, quite a, a substantial amount of money to go uh, into space. Um, yeah, this this 18-year-old uh, yeah boy from Tilburg uh, is is one of the lucky few who is going to join Jeff Bezos into space. Uh, I thought there was some sort of uh, it was some sort of lottery, but it was it was an auction. He uh, uh, his father really um, uh, paid five million euros for him to uh, to go into space. He wasn't the yeah. one who won, though. I think the the the, the person who uh, offered the most money um, what's about twenty five million dollars or something. But he had yeah. a schedule issue, so he's going to go another time. So instead, uh, uh, this eighteen year old boy is uh, is going into space, uh, and I think this is a very smart move by Jeff Bezos by inviting other people to join him because mm-hmm. there was this petition uh, going around on the internet that uh, asked um, uh, that called on 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 uh, Jeff Bezos not to be allowed to return to to earth <laughs> once he uh, he he once he's he, gone into he, space once yeah. he gone into space so yeah by uh, inviting this very lovely i believe she was 87 year old 
called this lady from from America and this young boy from the Netherlands. He is. Uh, uh, it's a little bit of an insurance for him to yeah, uh, to so, be so, allowed to return to Earth. Yeah, so he can take him hostage or something. Yeah. To Earth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, basically that's it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when Jeff Bezos, yeah, when Jeff Bezos goes to space, I mean, will will he will he, uh, will he go to Mars? But then he can't get to Mars, so he leaves a note on the moon saying 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 you were out, so we left your delivery on the moon. <laughs> I think so. Yeah, and I think yeah. the uh, all the passengers will be uh, will be required to uh, to pee in bottles uh, uh-huh. if they have to go to the to the toilet i think yeah and gordon you've been to the beach right uh yeah i went up to the beach uh, i just went up for a bike ride onto the beach the hague and there was an amazing amount of kite surfers so i'm guessing this is what uh, this refers to just literally yeah. the whole the whole beach all the way down to you know hook van holland basically it was just covered in yeah yeah you just saw this pole the sky yeah. was just full of these um, these parachutes it's quite spectacular yeah, you put a uh, video on Facebook, I believe, uh, yeah. uh, with all these guys. Yeah, it was pretty, pretty marvelous sight indeed. But was it some sort of festival, or, or was I, it no, just I, windy and a lot I of people wonder, went to I the I think beach. it was just a windy day, and everyone just went out on their. Um, yeah, everyone just went out kite surfing, as far as I can see. And all the kite surfing schools have started up. It could be, I think, maybe just a lot of people during lockdown because they haven't gone on holiday last year. They've all gone out and bought um, surf, bought, you know, bought kite surfing kits or taken mm-hmm. kite surfing lessons. I'm not sure, but it, yeah, it just seems to have exploded. That might be it, or it's just another version of uh, you know, whenever the, uh, there is one uh, beam of sunlight uh, yeah. in the Netherlands, everyone goes out <laughs> to a terrace or to the beach. So this is probably the wind version of that, I think. Yeah, yeah. But speaking of things in the sky, actually my big um, thing that's uh, been occupying me this week is, uh, is I've fostered a baby seagull because it uh, fell off the balcony into my oh. garden and it's just been mooching about there for about five days trying to get itself to fly and eventually yesterday it managed to get itself up onto the uh, picnic table and then sort of lurched across onto the top of the neighbor's fence and then flew down to the neighbor's garden so it's stuck there now. But yeah. So it moved to to your neighbors. Yeah, it's it's now bothering the neighbors. Well, it's not bothering the Are you now going to complain at the municipality that they're having an illegal seagull in their in a backyard? Or? Yeah, probably a non-licensed <laughs> seagull. They say that they should be paying their seagull tax to the municipality. Yeah, yeah. But, but it has been spending five days in your backyard. Back yeah, it's spending uh, five days in the back garden, just uh, flapping its wings, trying. It wasn't quite strong enough to fly, and then eventually. Um, it it did, but it couldn't fly very far. But if it could fly out in my garden, which is good, because I was being Gordon, absolutely you terrorized. To, by you it. want to get rid of it? I saw the photo. It's a herring gull. It's a baby herring gull, and they are just ah. you know they will eat everything. Yeah. So and also, its mother was absolutely terrorizing me. Yeah. So yeah. Well, they will. I, I mean, they you know they land on your head and steal your fish and chips. So um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Be careful. Yeah. Anyway, it's gone, so that's good. Uh, all right. Let's move to the uh, OPEF of the week. It comes from uh, Leiden this time, where a group of volunteers who clean up the city's canals uh, got caught up in also a bureaucratic hell. Uh, the group uh, is called Plastic Spotters, and they remove hundreds of kilos of uh, plastic, thousands of cigarette butts, dozens of shopping carts, and other trash that doesn't belong in the canals since its founding in uh, 2019. Uh, and they attracted over 400 volunteers. And in addition, they also research the impact of pollution on local wildlife uh, in uh, in the canals of Leiden. The plastic spotters use a fleet of six canoes, which they use on a daily basis, but overnight they are moored along the city's outer vest canal. But this week, the group received an eviction note from the municipality, demanding that they remove their canoes within two weeks or face a substantial fine. The municipality regards the canoes as pleasure crafts, which require a permit, but currently over 1,000 people are on the waiting list to receive one. Uh, one of the volunteers, uh, Auke Florian Hiemstra, which is probably the most uh, 
Dutch name ever, I think. I started out there with Anki Booker's Knoll. Yeah, it? exactly. They, they yeah. must be related somehow. <laughs> somehow, yeah. <laughs> uh, he posted a number of tweets about the red tape uh, the trash canoes got entangled in, uh, which went absolutely viral and led to outrage by many people who couldn't understand the municipality's bureaucracy. But luckily for plastic spotters, their problem seems to be solved. The local Partij van de Dieren put a motion forward in the city council in support of the group to give them an exemption from a permit, which is expected to pass. But the uh, plastic spotters are reluctant to celebrate uh, their victory. We won't believe it until we have permit stickers on the canoes, they say. Yeah, unfortunately for them that they're not in Amsterdam, because then it seems you can just they could have just gone ahead without a permit. <laughs> Absolutely. You can do everything without a permit in Amsterdam. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> Yeah, it seems to be ridiculous. These these guys, they they uh, go on the canoes every day. Uh, if it storms, if it's rainy, if it's even snowing, uh, they they are cleaning up the canals, uh, removing all the trash in there, and and then all of a sudden the municipality is making a big problem out of uh, yeah out of nothing really out of and, nothing. And, yeah. and they're known for it as well. You know, they're like uh, they are well known. I mean, yeah. they they have articles in the National Geographic uh, magazines, uh, uh, on CNN, on BBC. You know, they are. Uh, almost world famous uh, mm. for their work um, and um, yeah it seems to be a very uh, also from a PR point of view it seems to be a very bad move of the municipality of Leiden to uh, uh, to, uh, to to work so so against them. jobs yeah, worth it's a job's worth it's always a job's <laughs> worth it's more than my job's worth to give you uh, this that's what they say it's what the yeah. guy said to me this morning so uh Sure, it was the same man, probably. He probably skips. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, probably works for several councils. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but uh, luckily for them, they uh, they probably can still uh, uh, keep canoeing in the canals and uh, and keep doing their jobs. Yeah, and, and keep uh, cleaning them up of plastic, which is good. And there must be loads of plastic because, above anything, everyone's chucking their face masks away now. These, so these are the guys that the are doing the well. research into face masks and their impact uh, on animals. They're the ones that have the picture of the fish for example that got caught up in a plastic glove and they appealed a few weeks ago for uh, all around the world for examples photographs of where animals have been killed by um, corona related debris so um, hmm. that that's sort of no they're, they're great people jolly good this week, the province of Limburg got plagued by unprecedented floods. The number of corona infections in the Netherlands skyrocketed. Prime Minister Mark Rutte apologized for easing restrictions too fast, and crime reporter Peter R. de Vries died after he was shot in Amsterdam last week. Yeah, it was an absolutely crazy week. Uh, if if uh, when I sum up, uh, I was going to say, I mean, I don't think uh, this. yeah, I, I mean, this is the last podcast before the summer holidays, and I was looking forward to a nice kind of gentle, easy, light-hearted episode. To, yeah. to, to usher people into this summer break and it's turned out to be probably the most news heavy week we've had all year yeah yeah it's a crazy week indeed yeah it's been extraordinary and i think if you've been looking at the pictures unfolding in limburg it's it sort of you know this is the highest bit of the netherlands this is way above sea level and they've got you know serious flooding although i think i have to should say that you know compared to what's been happening in Germany, where I think about 80 people have now died. What's happened here is is nothing. Although, of course, Prime Minister Mark Rutte has declared the situation in Limburg to be an official disaster. And that means that the government will pick up the bill. Um, the water level is now moving down the Mass. And the other tributaries there, of course, as well. It's not just the Mass River, uh, known as the Meuse, by the way, I think, if uh, if we're taking it in, yeah, the when Meuse, it's in Belgium. So it I never France, quite know how to say it, it but... Um, um, yeah. 
But uh, the widespread flooding that they were predicting for Maastricht overnight on Thursday didn't materialise and the water level remained below the doom scenario. People in Maastricht have now gone back home, but they're now moving people out in Ruhrmond and further up as the as the heavy volume of water moves downstream. So it's a question of you know, I think having a look and seeing what's going to happen in the next few next few hours and the next few days really as the volume of water which has been brought by unprecedented rainfall over 10 centimeters in 24 hours and 20 centimeters in three days which the experts say is a a once in a thousand year occurrence so it's an incredible volume of water which they're trying to deal with and uh, we have to just watch and see what happens over the over the over the coming hours really and it is definitely an hour to hour occurrence yeah, and they keep, I mean, it seems that the initial uh, heavy surge in, uh, what was it on about, was it Wednesday, uh, sort of took them by surprise when they were expecting very heavy rain, but the level of flooding that they got were, wasn't really expected. So No, it might, might be partly to do with, they, after the big floods of 93 and 95, which you might remember um, if you're that old, uh, where huge parts of the Netherlands were basically underwater. They spent a lot of money and a lot of money also in that region. I think about 2.4 million, a billion, trying to um, improve the floodplains, make the river flow better. One of the problems is that people build on riverbanks uh, outside the existing cities, which is areas which are basically where rivers like to flood. Uh, so they spent an awful lot of money trying to um, make it better and not not so liable to flooding. But that obviously hasn't happened. And I've read some people say that, you know, we're talking about this volume of rain falling is a once in a 50 year uh, occurrence or once in a thousand years. But it's now happened twice within a very or three times within just a short space of time. So whether it's global warming or not related, nobody is actually saying engineers are saying it does show that, you know, we do need to do a little bit more with our water management from the hills, because, of course, the Netherlands risk is not just the sea level rising it actually comes from the mountains and normally these kind of floods happen in the winter when the melt happens from the alps where it's the snow has been but this is unprecedented for the summer yeah, and they call it a once-in-a-hundred-year event, but I think some weather forecasters warn that we'd like to have this more often now with global warming, which is means, as you say, that, that, that there's less um, ice in the mountains and there's more actual moisture in the air, and that means you get this heavy these heavy clouds gathering in the summer and then you had these enormous downpours and they, they were saying I think they were expecting this kind of weather to turn up around about 2050 but we've we've had it now and so it seems to as if uh, a sign that perhaps uh, global warming is running ahead of schedule which uh, we should all be yeah which is not a very um, a pleasant thought. And do the areas uh, upstream um, now also have to worry uh, for yeah the same types of uh, floodings that we've seen in in Limburg? They haven't actually said so far whether they're going to uh, evacuate people in the in the villages and the towns further up the river. Uh, so no, so far. I mean, they've removed people in Ruhrmond, some of the other villages, sort of in in northern Limburg. People are being told to leave their homes or even ordered to leave their homes in some cases. And there's sandbagging going on to try and keep water levels down but it, I think it's very much you don't really know what's going to happen um, it's quite unpredictable how 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 rivers work so I think it's very much a kind of wait and see and monitor but the good thing is that the government having declared it a disaster does mean that people will get compensation for their damaged homes um, and their businesses yeah. Yeah. even if the insurers don't pay up or they don't have insurance they will still be covered because it's a national disaster right yeah that's right that's right yeah 
course, it's not the only disaster we've got at the moment. I mean, we're hoping to have no. a nice, fast, you know, uh, uh, getaway for the summer holidays. But um, yeah, well, I'm afraid if you were looking forward to a summer holiday in Portugal or the Balearic Islands, then um, it's not good news because from Friday, the whole of Spain, Portugal, and Cyprus have been added to the Dutch government's orange travel list, which means you'll need a negative coronavirus test or a vaccine or proof of vaccination before you board the plane home. Um, But a much, much bigger threat, of course, to everyone's travel plans, whether you're going on holiday or if you're catching up with friends and relatives you might not have seen for a year because of the lockdown, is that the Netherlands flushed red this week on the European Centre for Disease Prevention and Controls map. Um, That means that other countries in the EU now could now impose tougher restrictions on Dutch visitors, including extra testing and quarantine. Which uh, MPs uh, keep uh, insisting on calling the ECDC, as if they are talking about the band. (laughs) (laughs) I know, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, was, yeah. I, was it just me or uh, I never heard of the ECDC until this week was it just was I just not paying attention or uh, did it just emerge only only recently no they've been producing these maps uh, well I'm not sure it's right through the pandemic but certainly since they started uh, toughening up on travel around about uh, February or March this year but yeah the, this ECDC map that uh, well I knew about it certainly um, when Hugo de Jonge mentioned it two weeks ago said uh, triumphantly that we'd all turn green the country had turned green on the map and then of course they opened up the nightclubs and immediately it went back from green to red. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, so we, we've got a there. we've got a sixfold increase in cases this week. Does that mean things are slowing down? Well, that in itself doesn't mean they are, but it looks. I don't think we're going to have another sixfold increase the, this week coming up. Uh, it does appear to be as if it might be topping out. Um, on Thursday, there were more than eleven thousand new cases, which is the uh, highest total since Christmas Day. And two weeks ago, we were on about six hundred a day. <laughs> Um, it seems that Corona just loves a party. Um, Christmas holidays, summer holidays, uh, it, it shows up in big numbers. But that was only just above Wednesday's number, and cases do tend to peak in the second half of the week. Um, uh, and although it was twice as high as last Thursday, uh, on Saturday last week, for example, we saw an 800% increase. So, oh, yeah, the rate of growth yeah. is definitely slowing down. So far, only Groningen has turned deep red on the ECDC's map, but other regions are almost certain to be added in the coming weeks. Amsterdam currently has 861 infections per 100,000 residents per week, and two weeks ago that number was 41, so t- almost 20 times yeah. in two weeks. Um, and then Groningen was 660, Utrecht and Groenvecht are also over 500 cases, and that's the threshold for that uh, deep red zone. So yeah, um, not good uh, news for your travel plans, and several tour operators, including uh, TUI um, and Sunweb, have uh, cancelled their trips to Spain and Portugal this week. Uh, others are more likely to follow suit, and um, the travel industry has said this will cost uh, billions in lost revenue. Yeah, and there was also a heated debate in Parliament on Wednesday, wasn't there? Yes, uh, MPs called for the government to reinstate the work-from-home rule. Um, the cabinet says it will go along that. There's also caused lots of criticism of the decision to reopen uh, just about everything on uh, June the 26th and, uh, and get rid of the, or do away with the face mask rule in most settings. Um, Mark Rutte also said that 18 months into pandemic, the government is finally making ventilation a priority. So hmm. congratulations. Um, they should have listened to uh, Maurice de Hond all that uh, all that time. Yeah, annoyingly, this is a point where Maurice de Hond is actually right, which is a terrible thing to have to admit. No, but, but it wasn't yeah. just Maurice de Hond. Uh, it, wasn't, it was lots no. of other people. Yeah, yeah. No, lots of lots of experts. Uh, also Maybe if Maurice de Hond wasn't that annoying, we would have uh, installed this rule much uh, much sooner. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the waiting time between your first and second vaccine shot is being cut from thirty-five days to twenty-five. 
um, to try and speed up the vaccination program. But um, <clears throat> but one spanner in the works there is that um, if you've uh, had a positive test, you can't get a vaccination for eight weeks. So the high infection numbers yeah. are going to start holding up the vaccine program now because 84% oh. of people who were infected in the last week haven't been vaccinated yet. Um, but yeah, coming back to the parliamentary debate, it did get pretty tempestuous. Hitville asked Ritter why he'd ignored the advice of scientists and Maurice de Hont on ventilation for so long. Uh, the SP and the PFDR said the error of judgment in reopening nightclubs and uh, ditching face masks wasn't an error of judgment. It was a cardinal blunder, and they'd warned about it uh, in, uh, before before it happened, which indeed they did. And there was a very spiky exchange indeed between Rutte and uh, Silvana Simons. Uh, Simons, uh, who's the MP for Bahrain, tabled a, com- tabled a motion condemning the government's strategy to allow controlled spreading of the virus, which had led to 30,000 deaths, she said. Rutter said the wording was uncivilised and shameless. He said Simons was implicated in the cabinet and the deaths of 30,000 people. It was a slap in the face not to the politicians but to their advisers and healthcare workers. But Simons refused to back down. She said the government's policies were unethical and even after a weekend when cases had risen sixfold, Rutter was still refusing to take responsibility for his strategic choices. Some very, yes, some language that was very un, yeah, untypical of the Dutch parliament, I thought. And Rutter was clearly rattled, I think, by the way, the way that uh, Simons had phrased this. He was clearly annoyed, yeah. Yes, no, extraordinary. Uh, um, you know, this sort of um, back down uh, second or third U-turn that they've done, you know, in the past few weeks, really. Yeah, and they've kind of, yeah, it's been forced on them because it was such a disaster reopening all the night spots and having this leaky test for entry system that just didn't keep the virus out um, and was never going to, frankly. It was, yeah, it, no. it, was it was an the, extremely bad decision. The report um, was extraordinary. To... If you looked at the report that they've sort of got 62 clusters they've already found, identified, which yeah. are connected to um, a club or a festival or, an in, or a big event, 62 with over 20 people. The biggest one with 900 people from a festival in Utrecht. It's extraordinary. And if you look around in Amsterdam now, Nearly so many places are shut. All the cafes and bars are shut. It's extraordinary. And in, in this, is that because the, uh, the the staff is is infected or? Yeah, uh, I think so. Or that they've okay. been in close contact with someone who has been. But you know, restaurants are always open at lunchtime. They're closed. Even our local coronavirus testing centre is closed because of illness. <laughs> yeah, I saw that. Yeah. I think really? in Rotterdam as well, they've, they've shut test centres because there's just too much demand. They've actually had to move the test centre to a bigger location because they can't cope with the number of people turning who want to have a coronavirus test. Oh, wow. This is, uh, this is a terrible irony. Yeah, <laughs> it is. Prime Minister Mark Rutte apologised on Monday for relaxing the coronavirus rules too quickly. He also apologised to journalists present at Friday's coronavirus press conference for refusing to reflect on the cabinet's decisions. As we heard earlier, the easing of restrictions led to an unprecedented rise in infections in the Netherlands in the past two weeks. Uh, In Friday's press conference, after Rutte and Health Minister Hugo de Jonge announced that several restrictions were reimposed, both ministers responded visibly irritated to journalist questions to reflect on their own mistakes. The press conference resulted in a heated back and forth between the ministers and journalists. Rutte angrily 
Italy interrupted a journalist who asked if Hugo de Jonge should resign, and both ministers insisted they hadn't made mistakes. But on Monday, Rutte did acknowledge the easing of restrictions was an error of judgment. He said he had used the weekend to reflect and had concluded that things did go wrong and the cabinet deserved the criticism. He also apologized to journalists for what he said a bad press conference. If you want to know more about the press conference, Dutch News suffers from a mysterious hacker who tends to break into our Twitter account and live tweet the whole thing. We will link to that thread in the liner notes. Yeah, our Twitter account seems to be about as secure as the test for entry system. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was uh, it was a terrible, uh, terrible press conference indeed. Um, well, it was, it, I, think, I think they were caught on the hop by the fact that um, the reporters at the press conference asked actual questions. Yeah, yeah, which, yeah exactly. <laughs> that, that's what I meant. I, I, th- I yeah. think the, the, they didn't expect these sort of questions because they never yeah. received uh, these type of critical questions in the past. What is a 34 press conference that we have seen from uh, Margaret and Hugo Junge? Uh, so I think that was what the irritation was about. They just didn't expect these sort of questions. Um, but yeah, the journalists uh, did a great job. Uh, it was uh, Margaret and Hugo Junge who were the ones to blame indeed. Yeah, um, so Ritter's apology came uh, two days before the Trader Karma had to be recalled from its summary says for this emergency debate, which we've already mentioned, um, thereby wasting all the time that you spent writing uh, this part of the script, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I'm uh, just going to use this opportunity to mention that the Tweede Kamer held the debate in the Riddersaal instead of its usual chamber. Uh, the Tweede Kamer's uh, summer recess started last Friday, and that also meant the beginning of the five and a half year long renovation of the Binnenhof complex. And uh, yeah, we, we mentioned it many times, but during that time, the Tweede Kamer will move to a different location. And while that location is being prepared, the Tweede Kamer uses the Riddersaal for debates if they are recalled from recess, uh, which happened uh, uh, this week. And normally the Riddersaal is only used for the opening of Parliament on Budget Day. But uh, they didn't waste any time on Friday and immediately unscrewed and wrapped all the 150 seats in bubble plastic to move them to B67, as the new location is known. And uh, the first budget overrun also didn't waste any time. Uh, On literally the first day of the verbowing, it was announced that the renovation will cost 50% more than initially thought. Um, Yeah, the costs uh, are now rising to 718 million euros. So uh, Mm. I was very happy when they announced this <laughs> but I, I never i never could have imagined that they did this on the f- literally the first day of the renovation it's just yeah. a glorious thing is there not a potential for some very comical mis- uh, mix-ups here where the location is called b67 and there's a political party called d66 this could cause chaos <laughs> and right? by and stuff like that yeah, exactly, it's, yeah it will be a yeah <laughs> another disaster waiting to happen indeed yeah. Uh, okay, what about our favourite other party then, the uh, CDA, Paul? What's going on there? Do we have a government, for example? No, we don't have a government. Uh, that will not happen before the end of the summer. We're going to have to wait very patiently, as we've already been doing for the past three months, for a new government. But there is news from the CDA indeed, because the management board of the Christian Democrats resigned at the weekend in the wake of a highly critical review of the party's poor performance in a general election in March. A committee headed by former Home Affairs Minister Lisbeth Spies concluded that the CDA had lost its way and needed to reconnect with its core voters. Isn't that always the conclusion of these uh, commissions? I mean, Of I've, any political party. Of yeah, any political basically. party, yeah, yeah, after they've done bad in, uh, in, in elections. Um, the party lost four of its... Uh, 
than 19 seats on March 17 and was plunged further into turmoil when popular MP Peter Omzicht resigned his membership when his confidential submission to the committee was leaked to the media. Omzicht also criticized the party's lack of direction and said he felt undervalued after narrowly losing the leadership contest last July to Health Minister Hugo de Jonge. But when Hugo de Jonge quit his post in December to concentrate on the coronavirus pandemic, has he actually started concentrating on the corona no. pandemic after that or when is he going well, to I mean he has that? and that's why it's good that's why it's gone so badly oh yeah <laughs> yeah that's the problem that's I mean, the problem, yeah. as soon as he as soon as he said two weeks ago we can look forward to a really great summer you knew it was going to be an absolute disaster i mean everything that happens is the opposite of what he could do says exactly he is yeah. the the reversed uh, he has the reversed midas touch <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, Omzicht was passed over in favor of Finance Minister Wopke Hoekstra. And Omzicht also criticized the lack of support from colleagues as he stood up for families affected by the uh, Toeslagen Affaire or child benefit scandal, which brought down the last cabinet. Party chairman Rutger Ploem stepped down immediately after the election results were declared. But the rest of the management committee followed suit at the weekend, with the exception of Ploem's interim replacement, Marnix van Rij. Uh, the speech report said the party's election campaign had been compromised by self-interest and internal conflict while its capacity for learning was described as small. And the CDA is currently polling at only six seats, which is a record low for uh, the Christian Democrats. They have the, that's the same number of seats um, uh, the Boerenburgerbeweging is polling right now. So yeah, wow. that's, uh, this, this, gives, uh, th- this just shows how, how bad the, the party is doing in the eyes of the voters. Yeah. As we head towards the summer holidays and look forward to our two-week break in Zouderlander because everywhere else is off limits, we'd like to take one last chance to thank our loyal patrons for their continuing support. Your donations really do help to keep this podcast going and we're always very glad to receive your comments and questions, so please keep them coming. We've got one new patron to thank this week, but they asked to remain anonymous. Uh, all we'll say is they'll have a lot more time to listen to the podcast now they're not having their feet operated on the whole time. So if you'd like to join IN, sorry, Captain Anonymous, <laughs> uh, and the rest of our team of patrons, log on to www.patreon.com, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash dutchnewsnl. Investigative journalist Peter R. de Vries has died in hospital nine days after being shot in the street in Amsterdam. The 64-year-old's family said they were immeasurably proud but also inconsolable as they confirmed his death in a statement on Thursday. De Vries was shot in the head from close range in Amsterdam's Lange Leidse Dwarstraat on July 6th, just after leaving a television studio at around 7.30pm. He was one of the most prominent journalists in the Netherlands, known for his work on high-profile crimes such as the kidnapping of Freddie Heineke in the 1980s and the disappearance of American tourist Natalie Holloway in Aruba in 2005. Yeah, and the list just goes on and on and on. Yeah. You can basically every every crime story that we've seen since the 80s, he was involved in that. And um, also uh, noteworthy is his involvement in the case of Nicky Verstappen, a young boy from Limburg who uh, who was uh, found dead in a forest, and he. At I believe he spent 44 episodes in his TV program about the murder of Nicky Verstappen and eventually the murderer was found and that's all we can all contribute that to Peter Edefries' work. Yeah, and he's also involved in miscarriage of justice cases as well, wasn't he? Like the Pritten Mord where I think t- two men were wrongly convicted and uh, yeah. Peter, Peter Edefries took up the case and um, managed to get the conviction. Well, with his help, the conviction was overturned on appeal. 
Yeah, and he also spent dozens of episodes of his uh, crime show uh, about this case. And, uh, you know, I, I think a lot of people, when the 25th time he's talking about the Putin Mortsack, he they, they probably thought, well, there we go again. But, you know, whenever he bites into a case and when he believes it, he he didn't stop until, uh, until it was resolved. And this is just one of these other examples which led to a good ending. I don't think we should forget also, he did a lot of stuff for refugees, he was yep. really yeah. anti and, and campaigned uh, for better rights for refugees, for residency permits for refugees. And he also was not afraid of calling people like Thierry Baudet a coward on TV. Uh, you know, mm. he was quite outspoken in his criticism of the far right as well. And I think that's kind of gets underplayed because if you look at the pictures and you of the reactions and you look at the website, the condolence register that which there is online, for example, look at the photos of the people who've now gone to the Langerdijk Weiter Dwarstraat to look at the flowers and see where he was actually shot. They're an extraordinary mixture of Amsterdamers there. There's every type of person has gone there, you know, to say, give their respects or to, to leave a comment. And I find that quite extraordinary. The, the sort of um, universal appeal that he had, it wasn't just confined to a, a specific group of, of the Dutch public who thought he was interesting or a good guy, but, but everybody seems to have done, now at least. Yeah, and I saw a clip um, the other day from an interview that he did a couple of years ago. And Peter de Vries was asked, um, imagine you die tomorrow, what do you want to be remembered for? And he said, uh, I just want to be known as a good father. That's all that counts. I mean, he had this, it was so moving, I thought, and he has this huge list of accomplishments and that, that really touched me. Yeah, he he did have a toy with uh, starting his own political party. One, well, everyone in the Netherlands does at some point. But yeah, exactly. Do you know? Do you remember what the abbreviation of that party was? Uh, no, I don't. PRDV. PRDV. Yeah, but but he um he did not start a petition online where he said if I get a certain number of signatures, I will go into politics, and he didn't get them. But uh... he said, I believe I need to be polled at um thirty seats, otherwise I don't do it. And I think the poll showed twenty nine seats or something, and then oh, right. he said, no, I'm not going to do it because. Uh, uh, yeah, he he had a threshold and he stuck to it. So yeah, everyone uh, described him as reliable, and uh, in a way, um, this also shows how reliable he was. Yeah, I think that's it. I think he was seen as a man of his word and um, somebody who uh, fought against injustice, and that, that was why people trusted him. There was a detail um, in all the coverage I really loved, which I saw on RTL Boulevard yesterday. It was an interview with him. He said his his whole interest in crime started when he was uh, caught shoplifting in Amstelveen <laughs> when he was uh, when he was a boy, and the police took him home and his father gave him a big long stern fatherly talk about you know petty crime and uh, he said that was how he got interested in uh, crime and injustice yeah and uh, yeah he he solved a lot of crimes and uh, and solved a lot of injustices so yeah that was uh, that was an excellent uh, talk his uh, his father gave him yeah and there were all sorts of reactions uh, from of course the netherlands but also from uh, uh, from abroad eu commission president ursula von der leyen said that uh, she was deeply saddened by the news of peter edervries's passing and she wanted to express her condolences to his family and to uh, his loved ones yeah peter edervries died surrounded by the people who loved him um, he uh, lived by his conviction unbended knee is no way to be free uh, according to his family and um, that was his life motto. And he also had it tattooed on his leg, I believe. And I think everything that uh, you need to know about Peter de Vries is that motto. We're celebrating Dutch cycling success this week after Anna van der Brechen won the Giro Donne, the Tour of Italy for Women, for the fourth time. 
Van der Brechen took the lead on day two of the 10-stage race and never looked back, winning by a minute and 43 seconds. Another Dutch rider, Demi Follering, finished third behind South African Ashley Molman Pasio, and two other Dutch women, Mariana Foss and Lorena Wiebes, each won two sprint stages. The first three finishers are all members of the same team, ST Works, and Van der Brechen said she's going to retire at the end of the season to take up a sports directorship with the team so she won't threaten the record of the Italian Fabiana Luperini, who won the Giro Donne five times altogether. My bike is uh, currently in repair. Um, uh-huh. in a bike repair shop owned by uh, the guy who is the technician of Marianne Vos. Ah. And my father is always very uh, proud to mention that that is also okay. his uh, his bike repair <laughs> location. So yeah, I um, I just mentioned that now uh, too. Uh, and I heard that uh, Louis van Gaal is uh, about to make a comeback. Uh, possibly. The rumours are growing that uh, van Gaal is uh, ready to return as national men's football coach following the departure of Frank de Boer after the Euro 2020 debacle. Uh, van Gaal, who's turning 70 in a couple of weeks' time, uh, did promise his wife, Truus, that he would retire from football management uh, once he finished at Manchester United in 2016. But Cannes officials flew to Portugal last week to try to persuade Van Gaal to don his manager's jacket for one last gig in Qatar next year. And uh, he has been dropping hints that he would like to restore his reputation. He uh, didn't uh, leave Manchester United in uh, exactly trailing clouds of glory. He took the Dutch to a third place finish at the World Cup in 2014. Uh, He also believes they could have beaten Germany in the final if they got through the penalty shootout against Argentina. Other leading candidates have ruled themselves out. They include uh, Ajax coach Erik ten Hag, until recently the Germany coach Joachim Löw, and Henkton Carter. But Giovanni van Bronckhorst has said uh, he would consider the job. Hmm. Um, is Louis van Gaal the Hermann Schenk Willink of football, or is Hermann Schenk Willink the Louis van Gaal of politics? It's a good question. Or is uh, Hermann Schenk Willink uh, the Dick Advocat of, uh, of politics, maybe? Hmm. I don't know. Um, because Dick Advocat, of course, remember, is the most... Uh, successful yeah. Netherlands team manager of all time <laughs> when you look at the stats. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think Louis van Gaal would uh, desperately want to uh, become the most successful uh, Yes, football, yeah, he wants to wrench that coach. back from, uh, from Advocat, no question. Exactly, yeah. Uh, there's also some sad news for the nation's ankle surgeons. Yes, um, uh, I'm sure a minute's silence will be held in clinics across Groningen after Arjen Robben announced his retirement. Uh, at the age of 37, the winger said he decided to hang his boots in the willows, which is an expression I hadn't heard before. Yeah, yeah. We, we just say hang out the boots. Uh, I like <laughs> the extra detail of the willow trees. It's quite nice. Yeah, in, in the wilgehanger, yeah, that's, uh, that's, the, that's the expression, yeah. I don't yeah. know where it comes from, but uh, I think because of all trees, uh, uh, willows are the, are the easiest to hang stuff in. Yeah, They do well. lend themselves to hanging things, don't they? Yeah. Robin's career featured multi-million euro transfers to Chelsea, Real Madrid and Bayern Munich, uh, a World Cup final and a long list of injuries uh, that earned him the nickname Man of Glass. Uh, Robin arguably came closer than any other Dutch player to winning the World Cup when his shot in the 2010 final clips against Ika Casillas' toe. He was also involved in one of the most notorious incidents in Dutch football when Dick Advocaat took him off against the Czech Republic in the 2004 yeah. European Championships. Uh, the Netherlands were leading 2-1 at the time, but they went on to lose 3-2, and the debate got so heated that the Prime Minister, Jan-Peter Balkonenda, intervened. Robin returned to Kronje, his first professional club, last summer, sparking a rush for season tickets, uh, but fans were disappointed as he was injured in his first match against PSV and played just six games all season. My footballer's heart would like nothing more than to carry on, but I have to be realistic, uh, Robin said. 
One of the most popular stories we've covered in this past week is the news that doxing or spreading personal details about someone so that they can be targeted personally is about to become illegal. Justice Minister Fred Grapperhaus has drawn up a draft uh, law which would impose a maximum sentence of a year in prison on people who provide or disseminate information that identifies a person with the aim of frightening and intimidating them. The internet and social media have exacerbated the problem, Grapperhaus said. It has been a problem for quite a long time now. Is there any specific reason why it is now uh, this law is now being uh, drafted? I don't think there's a specific reason, but there have been a lot of high-profile incidents in which public figures have been targeted online by groups, for example, encouraging people to turn up at their home. There's a, a far-right group which encourages people to turn up at the homes of well-known left-wing activists, for example. And what Grabberhouse said was that the ease with which some people feel they can intimidate someone by spreading their private details is more than evil. A line is crossed when people are no longer free to live their lives, when police officers are prevented from doing their job and scientists no longer dare speak out. And this has got to be made clear in law. And of course, the scientists side of it, he's referring to problems that there have been facing um, coronavirus experts who've been targeted by uh, conspiracy theorists who don't believe in coronavirus and who've also encouraged people to turn up at their doors and, uh, and harass them. So I think that's that's sort of the current sort of reason for it. But it was extraordinary. It got an awful lot of, of coverage uh, on Dutch News's social media. Uh, I think it's something which hits home to a lot of people. Are there no existing laws that uh, could uh, deal with this problem? Well, apparently not. Doxing has been difficult to tackle because it doesn't constitute a direct threat of a crime and it's not a persistent breach of somebody's privacy. The new law, Grapperhouse says, will change that and it will also make it easier for people who've been affected to call on providers, social media platforms to remove their information. It's also been a problem, for example, with the way Chambers of Commerce make the private addresses of freelance journalists or indeed anyone who's self-employed public. In fact, up until recently, it's actually been selling them. Especially if you work from home, your business address is your home address. It's um, yeah, and there was no way that you could have the address you registered with the camera from Colpardon all concealed from uh, the public records. No, indeed not. In fact, uh, um, we found out that uh, using freedom of information legislation that the Chamber of Commerce had actually made 3.3 million euros selling people's addresses before it was told or before the law changed it had to stop, but actually kept on doing it for about a year after it should have stopped. So uh, they've made quite a lot of money out of it as well. I also even read that um, the killers of uh, Dirk Wiersum uh, found his uh, home address using uh, these, this information provided by the uh, Chamber of Commerce. So yeah, it's crazy that they uh, have been allowed to, uh, to, to go on with this for so long. That's all that we have for you this week. This podcast is a production of Dutch News, which can be found online at dutchnews.nl. We will include links to everything we've talked about today in the liner notes. You can get in touch with us by email to podcast.dutchnews.nl. If you want to help us out, please subscribe uh, to the podcast and leave us a rating. And uh, you can also back us on Patreon now at patreon.com slash dutchnewsnl and earn yourself a free shout out on the podcast. My thanks to uh, Gordon Derek and Robin Pascoe. Uh, I'm Paul Peters and we'll be back in September after our... Uh, um, summer break and uh, hopefully we will not be recalled to the uh, Riddersaal in the meantime I sincerely hope not no I uh, hope everyone enjoys a good summer and uh, stays clear of coronavirus and uh, rising floodwaters yes stay safe absolutely enjoy mm-hmm.